this week. A famous ghost ship, and yes, that's with a P. The time a psychic was possessed in St. Catharines. And me driving the route of my new book, Godfrey. But first, a quick ghost story from LiveScience.com. The Flying Dutchman, the world's best-known non-human ghost, is a 17th-century merchant ship said to haunt the high seas. According to sea lore, the ship, which often appears as a hazy image or a strange light, is said to be an omen of bad luck and doom. The reason for this? The story has been adapted many times, but one of the more common versions tells of a Dutch captain named Vanderdecken, refusing to take safe harbor during a storm while traversing the Cape of Good Hope. It's kind of ironic. Despite pleas from the crew and passengers, but instead the brazen captain challenged God himself to take them down. And God said, sure, whatever, because the ship did go down and was promptly cursed Turned into its ghostly form, it is damned to never find a port again. This now ghost ship has been reported on the ocean from time to time, including appearing off the coast of South Africa in 1923. Most recently, though, the Flying Dutchman has appeared in movie theaters. Uh, This is from the film series, which I haven't watched myself, known as Pirates of the Caribbean. And in the movie, it was captained by Davy Jones himself. Quote, The tale of the doomed Dutch ghost ship stems from a British literary tradition from the 18th and 19th centuries. The wrote uh, Theo Metter in his book, The Flying Dutchman and Other Folk Tales from the Netherlands, he wrote in 2007. Now, it's likely that the ship is tied up in trading company competition between Dutch and British businesses from that era. It's an interesting story, the Flying Dutchman. And I think like you, or like me, you had heard about it, but you didn't really know too much unless you're into these uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies. I I couldn't get into them. I don't know. It just didn't seem uh, robust enough since it's only based on a a Disney amusement park ride, so I didn't really, I didn't really give it a chance. But if it's awesome, maybe one day I'll watch it. But I've heard, I've heard the term "the Flying Dutchman" before, and if I were to look at this ghost story and just kind of take the elements out of it, I mean, it it sounds from start to end like a legend. I mean, uh, I I don't know if um, it says the story has been adapted many times, but one of the more more common versions tells of a Dutch captain. So I'm thinking that, and then at the end, it's like they don't know whether it's Dutch or it's British. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just a lot of confusion surrounding this story. And it's a very interesting legend, but from start to finish, in my opinion, it is just a legend. Let's come back a little more local for a ghost story related to my own personal history. Uh, This is probably one of the most active investigations that I was ever involved with, and it's known from a a place called the Merritt House. Now, you might also know this place as the White House of Rock. 
you might also know this place because of the many times that I've talked about it on different platforms in the past. Uh, but it just, I mean, it sticks with me. It's, uh, it's, it's so interesting in the forefront of my mind that this thing had occurred because it was towards the beginning of my career, maybe a year or two in, when I started getting into the paranormal as an investigator. And not only is it the beginning, but it's such a powerful start because we went into this place that was a known local haunt. I mean, the stories locally in St. Catharines about this place abound and the people who had worked there and who currently work there are very familiar with the ghostly occurrences, so much so that even if you're a skeptic, I mean, you can't deny what's going on in that building. And it seemed to surround one major energy. So we end up being able to go to this building, the White House of Rock slash the Merritt House, named Merritt, M-E-R-R-I-T-T, like Merrittville, which is a small town in St. Catharines. Uh, that's named after a man named William Hamilton Merritt. He was the fella who oversaw the building of the Welling Canal. So a very large figure in the history of the entire Niagara region. You say Ontario history as well. It's also the reason why the house itself was so closely connected to the canal. And when I say closely connected, I mean literally connected because there's a tunnel. There's the basement of the house, and then there's a sub-basement that used to, I believe it is all bricked up now, used to lead from the house to the Welling Canal. So this adds a little bit to the history in relation to the Underground Railway. When slaves were escaping persecution in the American South, and they would come to Canada for freedom, Harriet Tubman herself lived in St. Catharines to help many, I believe about 70, people come across safely. And they say because of the tunnel off the Welling Canal that they could sneak some of the escaped slaves into the basement of this house. So you have that history. You have the history of it being a military hospital, I believe, during World War I. You also have the history uh, during the time of Prohibition. This would have been starting in the 1920s when bootleggers, you heard of Al Capone, well, his alcohol flowed into Canada freely, as well as our alcohol flowing back from our famous bootlegger, Rocco Perry. And the basement of this house is said to have been used, you know, take the illegal booze off the Welling Canal and into the basement of the house. It was perfect. So you have all this history surrounding this place, not to mention the families who lived there before. It's definitely going to be an energetic place. So when you go into it to do this investigation, you know, and I'm not that much surprised at how robust the stories are and how connected to the ghost the people were who worked in there. So that's the investigation idea. We ended up going in as a paranormal group invited by a former DJ who worked there, who remained nameless. And we brought along, so it was me, my partner at the time, and we brought along two psychics. Now, I know these psychics to this very day. As you know, spoiler alert, they were the real deal. And when they worked together, it was almost like uh, 
they became lightning rods for each other. It was, it was quite amazing to see. So you can have one psychic go into a place, but I've always been a fan of bringing multiple psychics. They can actually feed off each other. It's really interesting because um, I guess psychic energy makes a person have more living energy. You kind of shine a bit more to borrow a word from the famous Stephen King. So you have that shining about you. <laughs> So you could have two psychics that work well together, such as Kate and Michelle, and then they could feed off of each other's energies. And that's what we had inadvertently, this wasn't planned, inadvertently had created. So Michelle was an experienced psychic at the time, still is to this very day, very good at what she does. Kate was, is, uh, you know, became an amazing psychic, but when we went into the Merritt house, she had just been starting out, kind of getting her, uh, psychic legs so to speak so having them together was quite the scene and when we went first went into the Merritt house uh, we didn't know what to expect like I didn't uh, I've never worked with Kate and Michelle before um, it was kind of a new experience for us as well we knew from research and from the very limited shows that were out of the time this was before uh, ghost hunters and all those shows uh, I think it was the time of uh, Creepy Canada. But we had uh, had knowledge of investigative techniques. We were actually quite close to the teachings of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are famous for the Conjuring movies now and, uh, of course, Amityville. So we kind of took that knowledge with us. We had uh, recorders. We had uh, divining rods and pendulums. Uh, I don't think I don't know if we had an EMF detector yet. That might have, might have come later. So we go in with the scientific side, which is with the spiritual tools, so scientific with quotes around it, and with Kate and Michelle to kind of get a read on this house. And the energy in there was just over the top. Now, I'm not going to dive into details about the actual investigation. I've talked about it many times before. I've actually talked about it on early podcasts. I can't remember what episode number. It might have been 14 or something like that. You can look back into the archive if you're interested in that. Maybe I'll do it again in the future. But I'm going to fast forward to after the investigation. The major stuff, there's a lot of major stuff that happened during the investigation and the night before. But what happened after the investigation, I credit in my mind as a moment when my view on the paranormal shifted. Because you have to understand at that point, I wasn't really fully into it. I, you know, I was more of a writer by trade. I, I loved writing about these experiences. I love reading ghost stories more the better. But I wasn't really fully 100% a believer yet. You know, I, I was investigating, I, you know, stories and experiences were strange. I was learning as I was going. But it wasn't until this moment, this very moment after that investigation that everything kind of changed for me. So I'll describe the scene. Uh, we're walking out after the investigation. Now, there's an article on the Ghost Walks website if you want to see a picture. Unfortunately, in a podcast, I can't show it to you. Otherwise, I would. One day, they're going to figure out that technology. I know it's called YouTube, but and I want to do it in the podcast form. Uh, but look up, uh, you can do a Google search for attempted possession at St. Catherine's Merritt House. So if you look at, just do a Google search for that title, it will come up on the Ghost Walk site. That's the article. And if you scroll down towards the end, 
you'll see the parking lot behind the White House of Rock. So you can see there's the there's the garage there, the red brick building, and on the on the right hand side is the back of the radio station. So we're coming out the the tree line in the middle. We're walking that path there, and you can see under the circular window of the garage, there's a black square that is an amber colored spotlight that shines down onto the parking lot. It's small, but it's actually quite bright. So we're walking out the path there and we come just in front of the garage door. And uh, me and my partner at the time, we had turned and we were walking towards the sidewalk, which is the front of the photo. And then I turned and I realized that Kate was gone. It was just the three of us. It was my partner, me and Michelle. And I turned around and we all realized at the same time that she was standing, if you see the garage at the bottom of the, there's a little driveway that leads up to the garage door, at the bottom in the center, almost directly under that light, Kate was standing there, stick still, her hands at her side, she was facing us, she had this look of uh, a little bit of fear on her face, and um, I, I don't, I think it might have been my partner, she yelled out, uh, are you okay? And that's when Kate yelled out a sentence. It's a very small sentence, lots of power. And this was the moment it shifted for me. She yells out, he's trying to possess me. Now, just backing up for a quick moment, uh, you need to know that the energy of the building was this very powerful male energy. And when we first encountered it, it kind of took a liking to Kate. So it followed her around the whole night and it was bothering her. It was teasing her like a kid on a playground might. And they asked him, well, what, what name do you want to be referred to? And he told her that he wants to be called Booger. It was obviously a joke. We knew that. So, uh, you know, just laughed it off. But this energy was quite pronounced. You know, it just it bothered us, but it didn't really do anything major until the end of the investigation. So now walking in the parking lot, he's trying to possess me. She is speaking of this male energy that had been obsessed with her the entire night. And we run over to her, and I'll never forget this. She's standing there, stick still, but she's shaking. Now, think if you're sick, you know, that, uh, that little bit of shaking you might get uh, if you have a fever. It's not something that you can control. It's not something that you can fake. It's something that the body does if it's trying to expel a disease from inside of you. In this case, the disease is the spirit. So she's shaking like this. I assume it's her body trying to expel whatever's invading her her body. And Michelle, you know, being the veteran, I thank goodness she was there. Uh, she jumps into action. She runs over to Kate. She starts doing a uh, Reiki. Now, if you know what that is, is works with the energy, the aura around the body. Some people swear by it. So she's doing like a Reiki clearing, like trying to sweep away, you know, help Kate's energy fight this thing off. And that goes on. I forget how long exactly. I mean, it felt like forever <laughs> in the moment. You know, you kind of freaked out wondering, what am I looking at here? This is the first time we were working with Kate and Michelle. And it went on for a while, maybe, it probably was only a minute or so when I think back to it. Uh, and, and the minute that Michelle says the words, he's gone. Remember that light I was talking about, the little square uh, box in the photo there? 
the amber colored light turns off for a few seconds, like maybe two, three, four seconds, and then comes back on again. So you almost kind of picture, right, the energy leaving Kate's body, flying up and affecting, you know, the other energies such as the light around it. This is also one of the reasons why uh, one of the ways that spirits, especially really powerful ones like this thing, can reach out. They can affect your electronic devices such as a camera because they're made up of unseen energy. They say they have a connection to that. It's whatever you believe. But the moment the light turns off, the minute she says he got, he's gone, it's definitely more of a coincidence, uh, more than a coincidence to me. And it was just an interesting experience overall. So you can see that when you come into a situation and you really don't know what to expect and you go through the night you're being told stories by the people who work there, you're being, um, you know, showed around the place and, you know, something's following your psychic and, you know, there's EVPs that are being recorded. Of course, we didn't know till afterwards, but it's happening. And you're in this place that just feels haunted. I mean, that alone will set you up to be a believer. But then to have that final experience afterwards of seeing a possession right in front of my eyes, you know, that one will stick in my mind probably for the rest of my life. Now, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here. I, uh, I wrote a book. I've already talked about it many times before. I won't go into too much detail, but I'm quite proud of it. I know it's it's my first uh, novel. It's a novella. It's uh, like 150 pages, give or take. But I am quite proud of it. I, I, I think I've put a good good feel of horror inside of it. I definitely uh, uh, took no liberties when it came to the the more violent scenes in it. I definitely didn't hold back with that. It's uh, a side note. I couldn't write a sex scene. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. I just... I couldn't do it. I don't know. He's like, if if anybody's listening, you ever tried to write a sex scene in a book? It's so uncomfortable. I, I, I edged I edged around it a bit. I just kind of, I got close to writing the scene, like, but I had them interrupted. <laughs> I, just, I just, you know, saved myself the embarrassing. I don't think I could ever write a sex scene. I know, uh, I know I've read other novels that always put them in. I think there's a lot of famous authors too that don't do it. I'm sorry, I'm getting awkward here. But anyway, it's, I'm getting off of topic. Anyway, I, I went for a drive on Monday. Uh, if you know, if you're from Canada, you know that Monday was a holiday. It was family day. And I went for a drive, and um, I was going up to visit the area where my mother grew up. Uh, it's a small town in Haldeman called Fisherville. Uh, she grew up there. It's, uh, she gives in- interesting stories about her time in the tiny town of Fisherville. And I kind of based part of the novel, not in Fisherville, but that region, because I'm so close to it. So I drove up um, to Caledonia and turned to do a nice scenic drive along the Grand River. This is the same route, you might, be, you might recognize it, that leads to Ruthven. Now, Ruthven is a place that we do ghost walks at. My hope has been on hiatus since COVID, but my hope it will be back this year. We'll probably do a couple towards Halloween. So you're driving along there. You pass the street called Indiana that eventually leads you to Ruthven. Indiana was the name of the town that Ruthven, uh, the mansion in Ruthven, uh, the Thompson family, they were the ones who owned the town that was known as Indiana. So a lot of history up that way. 
and um we're driving into the town i featured uh, there's an opp station this is the police on the left hand side as you're coming into Cayuga and then I had the I think I mentioned the courthouse which is a Cayuga courthouse and that little stretch there's like sidewalks on both sides and I featured a scene in there and then towards the end of the book no spoilers I featured a scene at the OPP station so when I was driving through I was just thinking about that deep down and my connection to that region so I I I, uh, get out there I'm thinking about it I'm like having these uh emotional moments and uh went out to fisherville and i I went to visit i showed my i wanted to show my wife uh my grandparents grave and it took me forever to find it now my grandparents weren't the richest people in fact they were uh quite poor so the gravestone that was uh, that was done up was was quite uh, humble which is fine it's still a nice memorial and for the life of me i couldn't find it so I was like thinking, okay, at this point I have to use logic. It's the only way it's going to work out. And I was like, okay, I know my grandmother died in the 80s, uh, my grandfather in the early 2000s, and I know that the I realized the cemetery was done up in sections. They actually is quite cool. It's almost like generations. In the middle is the old 1800s graves, the limestone ones. Uh, on the one side is like from the early 1900s. Towards the back is like the most recent. Uh, graves and then at the front on the right hand side was the ones from approximately the 70s to the early 2000s so i knew okay logic it has to be in this little section here and then i'm looking through i knew it was a humble stone that was just put into the earth it's like not doesn't stand up it's like in the earth and i was looking and okay it's almost like a missing tooth so you have gravestone 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 empty spot gravestone 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 and I'm like, what, what's in that empty spot? Because there was snow and ice on the ground. So I couldn't get to it. So I tell my wife, okay, I'm, I'm dedicated to this. I want to take uh, some video. I want to show my mom, take a photo of the grave. Um, because she doesn't want to go back there for other reasons. And uh, so I, I, I took um, uh, the ice scraper that I had in my car. And carefully, as not to damage anything underneath, I started chipping away at the ice. And it took me a good 45 minutes. <laughs> My wife was very patient. She was walking our dog around. And I chip, 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 chip. And I finally broke through and uh, used the, the part just to kind of wash the water off of it. And I found it. It was the, the very humble gravestone of my grandparents. So I was very happy to find it. I was happy to reveal it and uh, take a photo and take some video of it. And it just it just reminded me that there's amazing feeling behind writing about what you know, what you've experienced. So I know this, this book, Godfrey, is my first book, but I'm very happy to have add, had it featured in that area. And to have, uh, even though Hamilton is, kind of, is my home, and the next book I write will be completely in the city of Hamilton, it's just, it, it meant something special to me to know my family's connection to that area, to know that it's not really a big part of my family right now. And, um, you know, I wanted to kind of connect myself to it a little bit more. It's, it's in, in, in kind of a dark way, but it, it meant something important to me. So if I were to, you know, end this off by saying anything, and this is coming from someone who's, you know, 
kind of green on this. I've written many stories over the years related to ghosts, but not anything in a novel form. So I really am a new guy to this. I'm, I'm a newbie. Uh, so, you know, getting advice from me is probably not a good idea. But if anybody's listening, is somebody you want to be a writer, or you're writing stories, you know, you got to put in what you know and what you're passionate about. Because when you're done at the end, you're going to reread the story, you know, in two, three, four years time, it's going to be like you're reading somebody else's story. And as you're going through it, you're going to feel this, that amazing creative pride. I don't know if you've ever felt that. If you haven't felt that, you need to find your passion and do something creative. Because when you're done and you look back on it, even if it was a complete failure, and it is possible that my book Godfrey is going to be a complete failure, and I'm fine with that. Because I'm going to look back on this writing and this story, and I'm going to feel that creative pride in it. And maybe if I do an amazing book in the future, it's not going to matter what book I do in the future. There's always going to go back to this one. And my connection to that area of Haldeman through my family. And it's going to really mean something to me. All right, that's it. I don't want to get too emotional right now, so I'm going to cut out. Thanks for listening, guys. I will uh, be back next week. Talk to you then.